Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. like to ask uh, each of you just to, to, to give us maybe five, five minutes, highlight any general themes, observations, thoughts, or responses that you'd like to share with us from this symposium event. Anything, it can be anything. <laughs> I don't know if I need five minutes. People, it seemed to me, said everything that needed to be said, except I think I feel a lot more hopeful than I did when I wrote my paper. It started with Scott last night with that wonderful list of our graduates here at Franciscan. And then listening to the bishop this morning, um, I feel so hopeful because I know he talks to his brother bishops and I know they must be a little envious of him being here with us because I think their lives are very difficult. And I hate it when people pressure the bishops as the way put, well, what are the bishops going to do? As if the bishops could solve this easily. They can't. And the, the answer is not removing the identity because that just ends the conversation. I'm hopeful that in the future we can keep more of a conversation open. And I know that I feel much more optimistic than I did when I wrote this. I, the first version that I gave to Kristen back in August, I'm sure she was shocked because it was kind of negative. And then I thought about it some more. Then I changed it again after I heard Scott last night saying that we should be friends. Okay, Scott, thanks. <laughs> it's hard to be friends. Um, so I guess that's the one word I would leave you with. I'm very hopeful because God does work in amazing ways for us. Doctor, thank you. Uh, without repeating myself, I'll put it this way. You see the four of us up here, and uh, we're honored, if I may speak on behalf of all, we're honored here to share with you our insights regarding this court ecclesiae, and specifically with respect to our own uh, responsibilities, our vocation in the church. Uh, but remember something. Everyone out here, every one of you are evangelists. So hopefully whatever you glean from our presentations here today remind you that you are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. We, this is not arbitrary. Jesus has dropped us since 2015 and say, hey, good luck, I'm out of here. He didn't say that to, as well to the apostles. He said, I'll give you the advocate. He will be with you always. In my classroom, uh, it seems like every time I teach the class, I draw that unbroken line. Pentecost to 2015, the Holy Spirit has not left us. There are times that we try to shake him, or we've, you know, there are some dark times, obviously. St. John Paul is quite clear about saying that, apologizing for that. But the Holy Spirit has never left us. Either, every one of us here is intentionally here. And how do we go about exercising that ministry? And in one way, obviously, is dialogue, cooperation between the university and the bishop for us to be able to reach out, evangelize, and catechize our brothers and sisters, especially in the midst of this secular society. I remember uh, back when I was working on my dissertation on Ex Cordia Ecclesia, I remember talking to another canon lawyer about the topic that I was going to be writing on. 
Um, and I, I said, uh, you know, updating everybody on the, uh, the, the various principles and canon law that apply to Catholic universities, in particular emphasis on ex corde ecclesiae. And after he stopped laughing at me, he kind of chuckled and said, isn't that a dead issue? And I, and I think in many ways it, it has really captured my heart that, that people think they don't, in other institutions, don't have to comply with what the church is asking of us as Catholic universities and institutions that want to remain faithful uh, to the church. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be able to be surrounded by so many people here at the university who want to be able to engage and want to be able to support the mission of the university and to be faithful to what the church asks of us. Uh, first and foremost, uh, also uh, I want to give thanks to our bishop, uh, Jeffrey Monforton, who has been such a great friend uh, to Franciscan University of Steubenville. Uh, the first year that I got here and became president, it was within a matter of months that I drafted him, first of all, to receive an honorary degree uh, as an official alumnus now of the university, but I also drafted him to teach for us uh, as an adjunct professor in um, uh, theology. So it's not often that you have such reverence and even dedication of the local ordinary uh, to the, the, the Catholic university. And I think in many ways what we have is this spirit of dialogue and discussion and mutual support uh, for both of our ministries uh, and being able to minister to the people of God here in the, uh, the Ohio Valley, uh, but for the university, all of the people that God sends to us as well. Uh, and so for that, I am truly grateful. And I know that it, this is, it's unique for him to have us, us in his diocese, but it's also a great blessing, unique for us to have a bishop uh, who is so supportive of us in all that we do. And, and again, I thank you very much. I think back to a visit from um, Father Norris Clark, one of the greatest Jesuit philosopher theologians of the last half a century. And he kind of surprised us by accepting an invitation to spend a sabbatical teaching here. He'd been for years at Georgetown and Fordham. He's written so, so many books countless articles and even in the Society of Jesus he was just sort of held up as a luminary and so many members of the society were sort of shocked when he spent his sabbatical at Steubenville. Well, we ended up spending two sabbaticals here and I had the privilege of driving him back and forth to the Jesuit residence down in uh, Wheeling and so we had conversations and at first he just didn't get it. He just didn't understand Francisco and yet at the same time he knew enough to kind of extend us a line of credit and so in between classes and office hours, he came to Mass, Moon Mass, and that's when the lights came on for him because he recognized almost all of his students who were in his seminars were there for the Eucharist. And one day when we were driving down to the Jesuit residence, he was sort of reflecting on what it is. He said, I, I imagine that at Georgetown and Fordham, the test scores, the SATs, the ACTs would probably be higher than the students here, but he said the appetite, the openness to learning, the, the hunger and thirst for truth, he said it's just, it's, it's unique, it's not anything I've found elsewhere, and it's widespread here. And then he said, when I came away from New Mass, I think I figured out where it comes from, and why it's so strong. And he said, you know, these souls, these young people just open their hearts to the transcendent every day. And he went on, and I just sat there driving him like, Wow, I wish there was a recorder. Um, and then we, we followed it up. And I, I would say that is something that is so basic. And yet at the same time, it seems sort of, you know, incidental to Catholic higher education. 
And then about four years ago, we had Father Jenkins come up from Notre Dame and he gave a presentation that he didn't have to give. And it, he opened himself up to, to questions and it was at the time of the great controversy. And so he did something I seldom hear any administrator in higher education do. He admitted at least he might, he might have been wrong, you know, in uh, some of these decisions that were so controversial. And afterwards, we went for a walk up to where he was parked and we talked and he said, the th he said a similar thing that, you know, if, if there's one center that is going to be the source of renewal here, uh, it's going to be your divine liturgy. It's going to be the mass. It's going to be the Eucharistic adoration, the devotion of the students. He just picked up on that. And I, I sort of asked a leading question before we broke from the Q&A after his presentation. But again and again, after a quarter of a century of being here, I am convinced that the liturgical foundation for our community of scholarship is so much more than the sum of its human parts. Uh, it makes up for what we lack. It gives us what we need. You know, grace builds on nature, but the supernatural just takes us to places we didn't think we could go. The second thing I would like to say, building upon that, is the openness to the Holy Spirit that has been manifest here for a lot more than I've been here. Not 25 years, but 40 years of conferences, 40 years of households we are celebrating, you know, and, and going back to the to the early 70s when Father Michael Scammell was first called here, the kind of openness to the Holy Spirit led to a dynamism of leadership that, again, was more than the sum of its human parts. It wasn't just someone who'd gone to Harvard Law School or the team that he assembled. All of that was essential from a certain perspective. But I, I think that the leadership here from Father Mike through Father Terry now to Father Sean and on down has just all, we've all kind of opened ourselves to the Holy Spirit and come to share in this sort of thing. And we realize that you know we're not going to ever be you know Notre Dame, but at the same time we're going to be able to do things that nobody ever would have thought. I grew up in Pittsburgh. I mentioned that last night. You know, back in Palestine they would say, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Mm -hmm. You know, "Can anything good come out of Steubenville?" Is what we'd say in Pittsburgh. You know, so much good has come out of this. And now I would also say, building upon what Dr. Hendershot said a moment ago. You know, I think of St. Paul, sort of my, my hero, and one of my favorite epistles of his is Philippians, the epistle of joy, because, you know, he's just rejoicing in spite of the fact that he's in prison and afflicted. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And then in Philippians 4, you come to verse 8, where he just waxes, not just eloquent, but really practically wise. If there's anything true, anything good, anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think on these things. And he's not implying that we ought to just bury our heads in the sand, hear no evil, see no evil, pretend there is no evil, but just don't obsess with it. Not only because it just takes our energy away and drains us, it also sort of, you know, empowers the opposition in a way that you don't really want to do. But it's sort of, you know, imitating Christ. If he wanted to focus on the things in me that weren't good, that weren't true, that weren't excellence, you know, he'd have more than a, a boatload. But I just feel like what our Lord does with us is he finds the good, the, the true, and he builds upon that. And I think through friendship, that's what's happened here. And that's why bridges are being built, not only from here to other schools, but also to those who are going to start more schools. I mentioned last night, Redeemer Pacific with Tom Hamill and Derry Connolly with John Paul the Great. Uh, but I, I, I think that the best is yet to come. I really believe that we're not just staying the course, that we've reached a sort of new level. And I, and I do think that uh, more graces are going to flow. We're going to see the new evangelization, Catholic higher education. And I think other institutions coming alongside of us and saying, we can do it too.
Thanks for setting the bar so high. Thanks for giving us the example. We have uh, time for questions. This is the last time you can ask Never again. No, okay, we're out of here. question. Um, I can think of a number of things right off the top of my head that, that uh, really uh, have the potential for impacting even faithful Catholic universities um, as they try to remain faithful but also exist in a secular world. Um, we have a government who is by and large becoming more and more hostile to uh, Catholic institutions, institutions that are faith-based uh, and imposing obligations upon those institutions without maintaining respect for their identity as religious institutions and continuing uh, to be able to try to live out their faith through those various apostolic works. I think that's probably the most um, dominant influence in our country right now as uh, with regard to uh, uh, Catholic institutions. And that's not just universities, that's hospitals, that's uh, any type of Catholic apostolic outreach um, for any kind of religious community or diocese. Um, second thing, and I talked a little bit about this in, in my talk, is the influence of secularism and moral relativism. Uh, whenever we have good people uh, who have not been properly catechized to understand uh, how the, the as, as Dr. Hendershot said this morning, the media is so much an influence in shaping uh, our men and women today uh, without being able to appreciate the truths uh, as we understand them and know them. And unfortunately, many people buying into uh, the arguments that are presented in the media, and as uh, Pope Francis recognized in Lumen Fidei, looking for that more comfortable truth rather than uh, being able to accept the challenge of what the truth really holds. So I, I think those are the really the biggies right now uh, that could even impact faithful Catholic institutions. I have a general question. Bring up the conversation. Say you have a, a good friend, you've known for a long time as Catholic. You see them at the more in their faith, and might be doing something against the church teachings. How do you just bring up that conversation since you know your cause and weaknesses? Um, but you've known each other kind of trust. How do you bring up that conversation about evangelization? I can take this one too, and then you can, I'll start it off anyhow. Um, it's a question that always uh, often comes up with parents who see their children drifting away from the faith. And I always refer people to the example of St. Monica and St. Augustine. St. Monica prayed for her son for many, many years in his conversion. She never stopped loving him. Uh, she continued to pray for him and she never stopped living her own faith um, and demonstrating the importance of that in her own life. 
Um, God will work on that person in his or her own time, um, and he'll provide opportunities for you, those um, evangelistic moments when the door will be open that will give you a chance to be able to share your faith with that person uh, whenever they're willing to be able to receive that. Uh, I, I expect the convert in the room might have something to add to that as well. <laughs> Sit back, relax. Because, <laughs> uh, wow. You know, I would say, building on something that Dr. Gage mentioned yesterday in his response, I think we need to be prepared to answer their questions. I think we need to be prepared with well-thought-out arguments. We need to be prepared to articulate the reasons for our hope, as we read in 1 Peter 3, 5, uh, 3.15. The, um, the fact is that objective content, carefully thought out and presented in a compelling way, is indispensable. At the same time, I think we have to enter into deeper friendship. We also have to exude that sort of joy, you know, that I mentioned before with connection to Philippians. And, and I think I'm echoing Pope Francis too, Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel. And when he went to World Youth Day, and there were millions of young people there, he just built upon the theme of the joy of the gospel and made the joy of the Lord, you know, the joy of the Lord is our strength in Nehemiah 8.10, but it's, it's just as true in the New Testament as it is in the Old. And I think the more people see that we enjoy being Catholic, that we enjoy thinking about these things, we enjoy the intellectually rigorous work and at the same time, the spiritually satisfying <laughs> element of, of worship and prayer and communion. Uh, I, I think more than the arguments, or at least along with them, uh, the joy of the Lord, the fact that we enjoy being Catholic and that we enjoy engaging people who have questions and objections and we can express our beliefs with respect and a certain degree of what I would say non-anxious clarity, you know, so that there's a serenity and we're, we're reaching out and finding what is true and what they're saying and building upon that and all. Uh, I, I think if we do that, we're going to show them what they're really looking for. And that is joy. You know, uh, Ronald Knox wrote that famous massive study called Enthusiasm. And he was looking at how emotion plays in religious movements. And, you know, he draws a twofold conclusion to paraphrase. On the one hand, nothing is ever accomplished just by enthusiasm. You know, it's just, it's emotion that comes and then it goes. On the other hand, he said nothing ever significant was ever accomplished without it. And I, and I think that enthusiasm, enjoyment, joy, hope, these are the things that supernaturalize all of our natural labors. And so in family conversations with members, we're not out to win arguments. We're out to win brothers and sisters or, you know, sons and daughters. And that's true beyond the family as well with ex-Catholics, with non-Catholics. I think if we look at them and see them through the eyes of the Blessed Virgin Mary, we recognize they're her children just as much as we are and she wants to reach them through us. And it just makes this stuff more exciting. And I think it also makes study, rigorous academic inquiry also more exciting. I would just uh, just add briefly the word or the, the phrase new evangelization, what does it presume? We have people that have fallen away yeah. that are in need of assistance. So uh, first of all, we are apologists. Again, varying degrees, but we are apologists. And oftentimes we're looking at it right at home with our own family. It could be immediate family, it could be extended family, but it's there. 
myself included. And then we also have friends. Uh, the first engagement may not be the right time to bring up something, but it may set the stage for that people feel comfortable, whether it's watching a ball game on TV or just a family gathering for Thanksgiving, that they feel comfortable with you. And we're the apologists, we already have the truth, but how we present it um, is in varying degrees depending on the individual and perhaps where they are at. Can they hear everything all at once bluntly or do we have to feed them slowly just for them to understand that the Lord still loves them, the doors of the, doors of the church are still open, even if they have not been to church in 25 years except for my dad's funeral. Uh, my, my friend who came to the funeral, he was waiting for the church roof to fall in on the entire place. I said, no, it's not going to happen. He said, well, I'm just having trouble with this. But he came from a family in which they didn't go to church frequently to begin with when he was raised. So how can I expect him for him automatically to start going to church? But we've talked about it. And this may be an ongoing 10 or 20 year experience that's testing my patience, but the Lord is saying, well, welcome to the club. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's, that's who we are. So it, it set the stage uh, and realizing with the new evangelization, uh, yeah, there is work to do. That, that's, we presume that in the definition. I have a question. Um, I'm wondering, in light of your reading of X4 Day, um, should we be seeing it, uh, you know, we talk about university and education, should we be seeing it as an instrument? Uh, for evangelization, is, is it sort of instrumental to that, or, or is it also intrinsically valuable? Is it both? I mean, how do we view the relationship between these things? Or are we, for instance, is it, you know, is it just that the, the goal is evangelization, there's lots of ways to do that. There's universities, there's soup kitchens, there's, you know, one of all kinds of ministries. How do you view the relation between those, those two things? Um, uh, can, they, you know, can they both be interesting valuable, and yes, not ordered? Like, what are two comments on? Since it deals with evangelization, that was the topic of, of our exchange last night, I'll start. I would begin with that distinction between evangelization and the new evangelization. That evangelization is not exactly what non-Catholics mean by it. That is just the initial proclamation. Although we must become good at that. It's not just the initial grace of conversion, although we should be eager to sort of foster that that experience as well. But the new evangelization in the Compendium of Social Doctrine, as well as an ex corde, as well as uh, Redemptoris Missio and countless other documents, uh, is about re-evangelizing the de-Christianized, but more broadly, it's an integral evangelization that sort of excludes nothing. And so at one level, you're, you're tempted to say, well, that kind of definition that excludes nothing is not useful because that's not what anybody means by evangelization. On the other hand, I think if you look at the documents carefully, you recognize that, okay, if evangelization is ongoing and conversion is, then what's the point? And the point is a Catholic worldview. It's not going to be a magisterial document that says, okay, everybody has to sign off you know, on the 24 Thomistic Theses, as much as I love those. The fact is, this is going to be something that we explore together. and. Uh, Von Hildebrandians along with Thomists, you know, Paleo, Neo, everything else. But I think when we do that, what opens up is something that is done more naturally at a university 
than in any soup kitchen or any parish or any focused staff meeting uh, or even at their summer training. I mean, I can go there and try to squeeze an ocean through a funnel by giving them six lectures on a Catholic worldview, which we touch upon philosophy and history and literature, but build upon scripture and theology. And I was there until past midnight with about a hundred of them, just Q&A in the, in the lobby of the dormitory. But I'm looking at them thinking, if only they had gone to Franciscan. And it wouldn't just be a theocat major, it would be philosophy, HCC, there's so many other ways to, to get this. And it's not just in the classroom, as I mentioned, it's through the interaction. And we far, we fall far short. We, we have so much more to get to. We could do so much more than we've done. And so it isn't like, you know, just we're the best. I mean, we're doing something that's really done well. And I don't know, you know, a study center, uh, if the new evangelization is really setting its, its, its goal that big, it's a worthy goal once you get it. But a university is not going to be just leading people to look upon, you know, God loves you, you've sinned, Christ died, now decide again what to do. That kind of basic evangelization is one point of entry. But I think the broader vision of the new evangelization, as I mentioned, is uniquely suited to what a good Catholic university is going to do if it's following ex corte. Just to add to, to what Scott's already said, I think the list of all of the people who have come through Franciscan University that Scott uh, provided us with last night gives testimony to the fact of how uh, we form those people who then go out and become the agents of the new evangelization and the ministry that they do. Um, but it's through the, the, not only the encounter that they have here, but the academic rigor that they are equipped uh, to be those men and women uh, engaging others in different capacities and certainly changing the church and the world as we speak of it. I may not be completely answering the question here, but uh, I'll, be, I'll preface it by saying we're doing it right now. Uh, having this, the three-part symposium series and in particular, bringing in individuals who are viewing ex corde through the lens of their vocation, their responsibilities in teaching. Yeah, because you're seeing a whole package here. You didn't hear everything you needed to know just from the bishop. It's the whole team, the collaborative event here. So look at it also when it comes to the matter of the ex corde. Read it also through the lens of your vocation. How, what, what part jumps out at you as well? And of course, as we know, a lot of times it's in the footnotes. What do you find in Redemptoris Missio? Or what do you find in so many of the other documents that are highlighted in the footnotes or the end notes? One just short thing. Even those Catholic colleges that rejected Ex Corde, it still was a valuable document because it forced them to look at themselves in a mirror and say, okay, we're going to reject the document. But they couldn't really, because they have to admit to themselves they're teaching on a Catholic campus. They know. I just don't believe that God has abandoned them. <laughs> we know that. They're good people. They're extraordinary people on those campuses. And they didn't take those jobs just so that they could turn everyone away from, from God and from the church. I got to know many of them, even though they vehemently disagreed with me, and I disagreed with them. Like Scott said, we could have a conversation, and that's why we don't want to end the conversation, and ex corde is still valuable, even for those who are saying it was invaluable. You know, it's like unvaluable. It's, it's worthless to them. We're throwing it away. Dead letter. That, that phrase was used a lot on my campus. Dead letter. But it wasn't a dead letter, and they still talk about it once in a while. <laughs>
It, just to follow up on what Dr. Hendershot was saying, I told, said in my talk that I'm going to be participating in this conference uh, with the Holy See in November, talking about the anniversary of Ex Corde and Gravissimum Educationis. But it's widely speculated the Congregation for Catholic Education will be coming out with a new document on Catholic universities in light of the anniversary of Ex Corde Ecclesiae. So probably within the next year or so, something will be coming out from the congregation. I teach literature, so I think in terms of when I teach literature, um, I pray my work. So I may be reading uh, dates, or I may be reading something that has nothing associated to faith, but I go about my work in a way where I'm just offering it to God. It's, it's a habit I've cultivated. But I want to communicate that to others, and I'm sure um, this conversation can take place across the board among the other disciplines. And I, I could see where philosophy and theology and knowing more about what's happening in those disciplines can help me better articulate that to my students. I teach the four uh, courses. I'm an adjunct, so right now I'm teaching the four courses. So that's my only experience here, really, um, personally, on the ground, doing that. So I see that as a natural place to connect with other colleagues teaching the core and discuss how this could be a more united and integrated effort. Um, so that's from my perspective. I'm wondering if I'm moving in the right direction with that idea or if there's uh, something else happening on campus that would, that's already doing that, um, that I haven't happened. Yeah, I think the, the revised core curriculum that came into operation about two years ago, that was the whole emphasis of doing the revised core curriculum. Um, previously, the, the, the core, we had one, but it was very, very flexible and it was very limited. Uh, but there was an entire process that went into place to do exactly what you're talking about, to bring the integration of the different uh, disciplines to have the students have a truly liberal arts education that enabled them uh, to see the beauty of other disciplines, uh, but also to, to give that foundation in uh, the American founding principles, but also the teachings of the faith, uh, basically through theology and philosophy as well. And in seeing the beauty of that in other disciplines such as literature that you're talking about, the fine arts as well, um, has a very active component in the core curriculum too. Um, there are, um, Dr. Hendershot um, uh, heads up the Veritas Center, but we also have a series of talks that go on every, I think it's every month, at least once a month, if not twice a month, um, it's called the Veritas Talks as well. Uh, but uh, they're giving more of a philosophical, theological, formational kind of um, discussion uh, for the students uh, in various topics that they need to engage. Um, alcohol, uh, pornography, all those kind of things that are issues that the students face today. Uh, but to be able to help them to understand um, the, the philosophical, theological approach the church is teaching on those things rather than just hearing what the media tells them is appropriate. I just had something to add, because you and I have talked before about this. We both are big fans of interdisciplinarity, team teaching, which gets very expensive, I know, because you're paying two teachers. But it is amazing. I have done it in the past. And our, this, the problems we face in our church are not going to be solved by a sociologist. But I also don't think they're going to be solved by a theologian alone. And you know that too, Scott, or a philosopher. It might be a philosopher working with a, a bioethics person or a biologist or a sociologist too, a faithful sociologist or a psychologist. Um, I taught, I, I headed an urban studies program and I taught in a business school because I taught urban um, 
urban studies with an, an economist and a politics person. We talked about urban politics. I would like to see more of I would love to teach with someone from literature because I think it would be wonderful and then bring in a theologian. But I think, I don't know how Father Sean would be able to handle paying three of us to teach one course, but wouldn't it be amazing? Or maybe just workshops for students or occasionally. But I would love to see more. We're doing a strategic planning kind of thing in the university right now. And Jim Mello, one of our administrators, is handling this. And we were in a, a group yesterday, and it's our Friday. It was such a, a wonderful experience for me to talk with other faculty about their ideas about where we see the university in the next 10 years. And many of us agreed on that. More interdisciplinarity, not necessarily in coursework, but just in, in working together. I would like to see more of that too. I just, yeah. uh, just to follow up on what uh, Dr. Hendershot was talking about, strategic planning, one of the things that we're actually discussing now is trying to develop a way where the philosopher, oh, I'm sorry, the theologians and the political scientists and the business departments can come together in a common space so that the theologians have an opportunity to influence um, the way in which business is taught and the way political science is taught and vice versa, um, that there is an ability to have that understanding, a common understanding through discussion of issues and engaging students in that discussion as well. I do think that the core is going to facilitate this as a catalyst. I don't think that'll be enough, but I think it's a, it's a big, it's a contribution that we've been waiting a long time for. When I go back a quarter of a century in 1990, when the new evangelization was sort of launched in an official way with Redemptoris Missio and Ex Corde came out, there was a flurry of encyclicals and apostolic exhortations. And almost every year, Dr. Crosby or somebody else would organize a a group, a panel of scholars like this uh, to discuss Veritatis Splendor or Fetus at Ratio and these sorts of things that were coming out. I remember when we were gathered to discuss Fetus at Ratio, one of the sections that I was asked to, to comment upon was the section where John Paul weighs in on a controversy that actually went back to the 1920s. And that was the propriety of using the expression Christian philosophy, because most, most philosophers who taught in seminaries sort of went against it. You know, Christian geometry, what's next, you know? Um, and yet at the same time, Gilson pointed out that the restoration of Christian philosophy was the name given to H. A. Patris by Leo XIII, that this, this is not oxymoronic, this was not oil and water trying to, this was something natural. But the point that John Paul was making was, it is proper, you know? Uh, it wasn't like in any way to condemn the people who had railed against it back in the 20s and 30s. But it was just to say, it's not easy, but it is proper. And if it's hard to integrate faith and the supernatural revelation that constitutes the subject matter of theology with philosophy and to kind of remind ourselves that reason is intrinsically open to truth, whatever the source may be, natural or supernatural, you know, I think we can also then expect to recognize that there are going to be impediments, uh, hurdles to clear when it comes to history or literature or other areas. And the tendency might simply to be to moralize, you know, to teach literature in an instrumentalized way so that we're reinforcing good Catholic morality, which is good, but it's not the best way to teach literature in an interdisciplinary way. And to, to underscore what Anne was just saying, I think that an approach to interdisciplinary studies is sort of what we're backing ourselves into by teaching the core and by seeing students coming here 
who, who, who take each other, you know, so, so they have history courses, they have literature, they have theology and philosophy. So in office hours, at least, if not in the Q&A during the classroom, we're getting that kind of cross-fertilization. And I think that, that motivates me, I, that inspires me to make a point of bringing something up in a conversation with a colleague. And so I, I think that we're gonna see more of it. The tendency though, that we have to overcome is we're so busy here at Franciscan. I mean, within six weeks of landing here and beginning to teach my first semester, I remember nicknaming it the Frantic University <laughs> because I had never seen anything where there was so much frenetic activity. It was all godly and all, you know, but I think at times we have to recover leisure as the basis of intellectual culture as well. And I think that's a challenge we face as well. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.